Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two year contracts, they said, What the f? Are you talking about you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for 3 months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey everyone, welcome to the 273rd episode of Just Shoot It, a podcast about filmmaking, screenwriting and directing. Today's episode is brought to you by patrons Jamie Sadler, who I'm only mentioning because he keeps asking me to mention him, even though we've mentioned him so many times, but he is British, and I do believe that they get way more leeway than other people just because of their accent, even though he's just messaging me on Instagram, so I don't even hear his accent, but he uses, like, Britishisms. Good and day, also Mike Oren, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And also Mike Leonard, who has not harassed me in any way, but I do owe you a hat, Mike. And because of that, I'm going to mention you yet again. I'm Oren Kaplan. And I'm Matt Enlow. I'm not nearly as susceptible to guilt or harassment, but I am uh, here. You mean you don't read your messages? <laughs> what? Uh, today on the show, we've got Stu Pollard, the man behind Lunacy Productions, a production company. One of the least crazy production companies you've ever heard of. Yeah. Once in a blue moon, they make movies like Rust Creek, Plus One, The Short History of the Long Road, Freeland, uh, the, those first three we've all had filmmakers from. Uh, but they make a whole bunch of other movies as well. Uh, and Then I Go, which uh, also uh, Rebecca Green, previous guest, uh, worked on. Anyway, we dig in with Stu. Besides being an awesome producer, Stu teaches a class on film financing that I took from Film Independent back in the day. And we've uh, remained pals ever since. And I, I thought, oh, let's have Stu on to talk about the nuts and bolts of getting your movie made. And it just so happens that... They've also launched a new program called Lunacy U, which is an online course available for people all over the world to go ahead and learn uh, the things that I learned from Stu about basically the, the ins and outs of writing a business plan. And so uh, we invited him on the show to talk about it a little bit. Yeah, Stu knows everything about making movies, especially indie ones, and knows quite a lot about the business of them. Turns out, apparently, that you should raise money for production and post-production before you start making your movie, according to Stu. So uh, there's uh, one mistake I've made in the past. <laughs> yeah, so we, we really dig in. It's a great conversation. You know, Stu is a fountain of knowledge, so we, we really tried to ask as many questions as we possibly could from the perspective of you, the listener, as well as ourselves just to kind of think through like what what do these things mean all of the different ins and outs of what a business plan is how to find financiers all of that stuff we dig into why you should be making movies in the first place so it's a really great conversation i'm very excited and if you are curious about learning more you can always go to lunacyu.com yeah one of the least crazy urls i've ever heard of but before we talk to Stu, matt and i we're gonna just chat for a moment about director's reels the reason is uh past guest George Edelman and I were chatting he is one of the guys that runs no film school and he was like hey Oren you're the only person in the world that cares about director's reels you want to write an article about it and I said of course I want to <laughs> I want to spread my knowledge and give advice on director's reels to and then you, the you texted me you texted me and you said oh I'm working on this 
this uh, article about director's reels and I wrote, why? <laughs> no, you. I, I will say what you actually responded is, is the article just telling people that they don't need to make a director's reel? <laughs> that is what I said, actually. Yeah, clearly, um, just busting your chops a little bit, Oren, but I, I think there is an interesting uh, I don't know if you're busting about. my chops because you wrote, I'm genuinely being sincere about this question. <laughs> <laughs> I did write that too, and I was I was sincere. What? <laughs> yeah. So so okay. Well, we'll take a step back then. Oren, why do you think that a reel? And when we say reel, we mean a montage, oftentimes cut to music, but not necessarily of your previous work in a fun and entertaining way. Why? Why do you think that a reel, like a a, a trailer for your career, for your body of work? is uh is a valuable tool for directors out there that's a great question well first of all i want to say that i believe it is a valuable tool for a certain type of director at a certain place in their career so the david finchers or even the people that are regularly directing tv you know maggie kiley some of our previous guests that have directed like a million tv shows you know i don't know that maggie benefits a lot from putting a scene from american horror story and then pulling putting a scene from scream queens and then another show on her reel because people can just look at her IMDb and there's a certain level of legitimacy just from seeing the credits you literally have to have seen none of her work to know that she is a good director right mm-hmm. and that yeah she's at a level that um you might consider hiring her there are other directors that have made like three short films at film school and that's it and i don't think they're quite in a place where a reel makes sense either because a a reel should kind of represent your body of work and who you are as a director and who you want to be as a director and b it should really only contain your very best stuff and if you haven't made a ton of stuff then it's hard to to show your best stuff but uh, and i have and i wrote write about this in the article i do think what the reel is in my opinion, is your point of view on your work as a director that you are proud of and the type of director that you want to be. So what I mean by that is maybe you made a commercial, maybe you made a short film, maybe right, you made that short film, A Gray One, kind of recently. How long is that short? It's like 12 minutes. 12 minutes, Maybe right? a little less. So if yeah, you want to yeah. show someone a breadth of your work because, hey, uh, we want you to meet with Matt. He's this comedy director. He's done a lot of great things, blah, blah, blah. Here, watch some of his stuff. Like, you don't want to give them four 12-minute shorts, right? That's 48 minutes worth of stuff to watch. And maybe a gray one, maybe there's some good scenes and there's some great scenes. And maybe there's a really funny moment. You know, you happen to have a trailer for a gray one. So that's actually what you chose to do instead of of making a reel to include it. You've given a preview of the tone, of the style, of the production quality, of the casting, of all those things that comprise a view as a director in a trailer to a short. I think a lot of people do not have a trailer for their short film. So I think a reel for me, I've directed so many commercials that I don't love, but there's something in them that I, that I really like, like this, this dog does something funny, or I have an actor that I really love that does something great. Or, you know, this commercial was actually never released and we never did a proper color and sound mix on it. But I think there's four shots in it that are great. I have this Converse spot on my website with Pete Davidson. It was never released. It was never finished. We never went never went through color and never went through sound. You probably technically not supposed to have it on your website yeah i bet i, I didn't see it, so yeah everyone no just ignore this uh, part of the conversation if you are litigious but, but honestly that is a big part of what's cool about a reel is right it's not a commercial product so 
at least as far as I'm concerned, I can use any copywritten piece of music in my reel. You know, I can take a commercial and I can that I thought would be so much better if we had some Led Zeppelin song in it, but we never could. I'm going to put the Led Zeppelin sign. Like I can take devil's advocate. Actually, do you remember a couple of years ago, a bunch of directors were so mad because Vimeo did a DMCA purge. Basically. Do you remember this? I don't remember that. Like I know you three, three or four years ago, basically everybody had all of their stuff on. Most directors use Vimeo as like their portfolio archive for a portfolio. So they had all sorts of different commercials and music videos, anything that they had directed, all of which is copyrighted and you are not the copyright owner. And so a bunch of people's stuff got taken down. And so you just all over Twitter, every director I knew was like, oh my God, I can't believe they, I, this spot, this is the only copy I had of this spot and it's gone. And people were pretty upset. Did they undo that? Because um, I have so much copyright no, music on there. No, no, they just did it in one big sweep. And then, you know, who knows? It's a, we're just sitting on a time bomb. All of which is to say, you could have done that either way. You don't own the rights to the, work that you have right with the exception of if you did a short film or something youtube is pretty strict about that dmca copyright stuff but i use vimeo like you mentioned and i and i don't make my videos public they're private you have to have the link but you can still embed them on your own website that's that's what people were mad about is that that was the that's what everybody does and they got wiped oh okay well i i luckily have a copy of all my stuff in case it does get wiped <laughs> you've got you've got a hard drive in your backpack yeah worth. five terabytes at least rugged um, anyway, so I do think, and again, I've been thinking a lot about this today, that your reel is, hey, here's my personality. I'm going to show you the stuff that I've made that I really love. Uh, and I'm in sometimes I'm even going to tell you why I'm showing it to you and why it's good. Like my reel, I narrate my reel and I more or less explain why every single piece of footage is on there. And I try to make it fun and light and quick. And I do mostly comedy. So there's kind of you know, a comedic bent to it. To it. There's mm-hmm. a, a point of view. You know, another director that we said who had an amazing reel is Tim Wilkheim, who whose reel is just hilarious. And he he's really good at that kind of deadpan comedy. And his reel is, the way he formed it is a deadpan comedy reel. And he managed to get a lot of celebrities in there without showing an entire short film with, you know, James Corden in it. He can show us five seconds of this person, four seconds of this. He has, you know, he's, he's had short of the week multiple times. He's had stuff in South by Southwest. How can you show people all those things in one minute? And to me, that's the real, um, somebody, uh, it's an entertaining and an entertaining resume effectively. Yeah. And right. And even, um, Seth Worley and a cover letter, right? Yeah. So Seth Worley, past guest, I'd say I'd even consider him a friend at this point. I hope that's not TMI. He wouldn't. He wouldn't. He would for sure would not. Um, yeah, yeah. He's been texting. Me about it. <laughs> but he recommended like, Valentina V's reel. Did you? I don't know if you saw his recommendation or if you've I seen it. I have seen that one. Yes. Yeah, yes, I have. So it opens up with, you know, The Rock and is it Jason Statham? You know, and her audio directing them to look in a certain direction. And that's. You know, her, I think her point of view on things is not only am I going to make cool stuff, but I'm going to like include you in how I'm making it. Like I, I really enjoy the puzzle of filmmaking and I'm going to include you on that journey. And that's why she makes, you know, she's like does stuff for aperture lighting. She does stuff for all these different mm-hmm. camera yeah, companies. Very front and center. Yeah. yeah, totally. We should have her on the show. We should. Yeah, but at the same time that yeah. she does that, she still makes good stuff you know on her own, like commercial things and 
and things on her own. So I think for someone like her, who's also a cinematographer, by the way, uh, she can say, hey, here's some stuff I shot. Here's some stuff I directed. Here's here's a glimpse of me in two minutes. So I think someone like her, someone like me, someone like Tim, I think there's a value in having a reel when you can only get someone's attention for two minutes and you want to tell them like, hey, this isn't the first thing I've ever made. I've actually worked with a million people. I've worked with a million brands and you can trust me. And also I have a perspective on who I am and what work I do. Mm-hmm. And the self-awareness. Yeah, no, I I think all of that's great. And I, I do genuinely think that there's a lot of value, even just in the act of formulating what that perspective is. Like just formally saying, hey, this is what I do and this is what I'm good at, uh, I think is really interesting. So so I, backing up a little bit, because I, like I said, I know it's just kind of giving you a hard time. I think that there That's what is, your real should be. It's just you giving people a hard just, time. Just, yeah. I come from a long line of teasers, actually. That's true. It's uh, how I express love. I don't know what's wrong with me. Um, anyway, so I think that there is kind of this cool kid mentality, cool kid perspective. Um, that we were talking about a little bit offline that I think does sort of plague the idea of what a reel is. And I think you've done a really great job of explaining what makes them special and unique and interesting. And this mentality that I'm referring to, I think is is bred out of a few things, one of which is um, the misunderstanding that a reel is to get you work from production companies and agencies. Right. Like like you're you're not saying that your commercial reps send that specific clip when they're pitching you for a commercial necessarily. Right. Like most of the time, 90 percent of the time, it's, um, you know, it's a flavor piece. Maybe they put somewhere in there, depending on what the tone of the spot. Yeah, is. I'd say, you say that's accurate. I would say it's almost never been sent unless some companies I work with, I say to them, hey, can you please send this reel? I, it's gotten me. It good. works. It, it works. Right, yeah. Right. Like I've been on set commercial sets where people, I got the job unrelated to the reel and then people checked out my website and they saw the reel and they said, Oh, Hey, by the way, we really loved your reel. It was like clever. Whatever they, they, whatever word they use. So to me, it's like if the, if the feedback is always positive, even from commercial agency type folks, like, why are we not sending it? And I think the answer is because there's a context in commercial reels where you want to just see three commercials that are related to the commercial you're pitching on. And also my reel personally, because I'm lazy like everyone, is I try to make a reel that just is a catch-all for all things. So it has features, it has TV, it has commercials, it has shorts, it has web videos, it has me in it, just like webcam, you know, stuff. So it doesn't, it's like if only 25% of it applies to commercials, why would you show it to when you're pitching on a commercial because you're wasting their time with 75% of that reel? And and sometimes it works that uh, like, oh, it is cool that Oren's made features. Some people, so plenty of agency people love movies, right? Yeah. I've seen directors that have like a Sundance short and a trailer for a feature they made and they get commercial jobs off of those teams. Yeah, yeah. Actually, the um, the company I'm with currently, part of that model is like, it's cool to make other stuff. You know, like most of the directors on that roster don't have a huge amount of commercial work, even though it's a commercial production company. It's like, no, they've got Sundance features and stuff like they've got movies you actually watch. 
um, which is fun and cool. But uh, so, so go, I th- going back to this mentality, separate from the idea of whether or not it gets you work, I think that some of it comes from this this thing that basically when you're young and you're starting out, and I am a perfect example of this, I put together a reel that had a couple student shorts on it, maybe the the one or two good looking shots from that short and like a few shots that were just practice, you know, me kind of trying to figure out an animation technique or I had an idea for something that ne- like never even finished and you can feel it stretching. You can tell that someone is filling things in and like maybe the director is like hoping that no one's going to notice that obviously it's really just student work or you I won't, I haven't made enough to really um, amount to uh, a professional body of work yet. And I'm trying to fool people, right? We've all been in a version of that. And then slowly, as your work becomes more professional and you work more, that reel gets better and better and better. And, and then all of a sudden, it makes more sense to start sending people examples that are closer to what they're specifically looking for. And, and then at a certain point, you end up in that Maggie Kylie camp where people have just heard of your work, right? And so there is that thing of like the director in the middle that maybe aspirationally wants to be in the more successful camp and can kind of, and I maybe would put myself in this, maybe there's a part of me that's like, oh, well, you know, I'm maybe I'm big enough that I don't have to cut a reel together anymore because I have enough work. I have a body of work and I can send people trailers to my long form stuff and just the actual spots of my short form stuff. I wonder that might be some of the psychology of like the different people that we've talked to and how they feel about that stuff. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I agree. I also think it's just really hard to make a good reel. There's two Super hard. of yeah, the yeah. main issues I see with reels are that either they are 10 scenes slapped back to back with almost no context as to why you're showing me this scene. And people think they need to choose the most emotional scene they've ever shot. You know, a couple fighting, someone crying, someone well, blowing. Let me ask you, up. Warren. Yeah. Do you do you think that you like reels because you're good at them or are you good at them because you like them? I don't think I'm good at them and I don't think I like them, but I think <laughs> I have a ton of opinions. I think I've seen, I've seen, and largely because of this podcast, so many bad reels and average reels and I do feel like <laughs> this is going to sound like a, such a dick thing to say but I feel like part of my mission in this podcast is to help people see their own work in the way that other people see it is to, to get out of your own shoes and, and have someone else's perspective and so to me when I see a reel that has cliche things on it has things I've seen before that has no context that is boring to me I just want to say like Dude, what? Why are you showing me this? Like, I don't know why you're showing me this. You have one chance to show me something that should be awesome. And by the way, I've seen great reels. You know, Daniel Hurwitz, um, I found his reel. I showed it to you. We talked to him about it. Like, there are reels that really catch my eye, and I'm excited to and, and that learn more don't about these people. Just, that don't just have a hook or a, a gimmick or a meta idea of some sort, right? Like, I think that there's probably people at home who are like, okay, well, they see Tim's reel. And they're like, fuck, that idea is so good. And then they see your reel and they're like, oh, man, well, that 
that riff is really interesting. I love that. And then they see Valentina's reel and they're like, well, dang, I don't have footage of The Rock saying that I rock. <laughs> right. Um, and so the idea of just like, okay, well, just doing like picking a, a cool song and then putting your best shots in order to it is complicated, you know, or, or is uh, right. Well, you know, well intimidating. That's- that's what I was going to say is the other problem in a reel. It's people either slap these scenes back to back or they take all their best shots from all the things they've ever made and they cut them to the beat of some song. And usually it's like an artsy fartsy song. And in that version, it's more of a cinematography reel. And as a director, I don't really need you to show me how beautiful your shots are. I want to see how you can control pacing, mood, emotion, storytelling, characters. And that is really hard to do fast. So... If you can do it, then I think it's something we're talking about. And if you can't do it, then you probably shouldn't have a reel, which is, I think, what you're alluding that's to. That's kind, in a of, way. kind of what I'm getting at. Yeah, exactly. I, that's on the low end. On the high end, you don't want to say, hey, look at all these famous people I've worked with because you're at a level where you don't need to brag about that, right? Um, like there, there is something cringeworthy, like kind of the name dropping of of things where you're like just telling people like, I swear I'm like a legitimate person. You should hire me. Look at all this stuff I've I've made. So there, there is a fine balance between those things, but I think, I think it's fun. And I think, yeah, we know that the only audience isn't Hollywood executives and agents and managers. Well, and I think that's the big thing is that I think a reel can be for all sorts of different types of people who aren't jaded Yes. Right. I think that's maybe who it's best for, frankly. Yeah. You know, I've done that. I've posted stuff on my Facebook page and I'll have someone from high school that doesn't work in the film industry reach out and say, hey, you know, I'm working on for this startup in Silicon Valley. And I know the marketing department is looking to make some videos. Can I put them in touch with you? You know, like, yeah, maybe it's not a Pepsi commercial for the Super Bowl, but it could be cool. You know, sometimes those Silicon Valley commercials give you a lot of leeway, a lot of freedom and a lot of money to do whatever you want. So it, it's, it's a thing. And especially if you have any off time, it's kind of good for like your ego to remind yourself like, Hey, here's all these things I made that I'm proud of. So I don't know. I, I like reels. I get that they're really hard. Um, you had mentioned that like having a website with just like links to all your things is great as well. And, and I, I do agree that that's also good, but I have a lot of thoughts on reels. If you want to hear more of them, then either send me a message on Instagram or on Twitter. And uh, when the article comes out, I will send it to you. I'll send you a link. Did we ever talk about on the show that dude who ripped your reel off? No, but I, I linked to his reel in my article. Oh, dang. In my list of oh, great reels. Dude. So just for people who haven't seen Orange Reel, it's, it's a meta commentary on what a good director's reel is. It's got voiceover. You know, he kind of enumerates all of the different things that make a reel good. Like, oh, is it interesting to have uh, celebrities that you've worked with? Uh, you know, what about fun dogs? Uh, that That's literally yeah, Don't forget Warren's to put voice. all the logos of the brands you've mm-hmm, done mm-hmm. stuff for. So, so it, it, like I said, it's a meta commentary on what a reel is narrated by and starring Oren with his footage. And so Oren, about a year ago, sends me a link to a dude who has full on cribbed this idea. Like like stolen most of the script. He's tweaked a little bit of it. 
but it is very clearly stolen. And I don't use that word lightly because I think that, you know, pirated. No, no, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to call it stolen. This is a, people being creative, remixing things, rethinking things, reimagining things. I'm a hundred percent open to. And so when some, but when someone steals someone's idea outright like this and it is that cut and dried, I actually think it's quite abhorrent. So, um, you, you, I'm going to say that on your behalf. You don't have to comment on it. I, but anyway, the point is... I was flattered. It was this guy. I'm pretty sure he was in India. He just... It's his voice, but he's saying exactly what I say. Your exact script. My exact... With, with yeah, a, few tweaks, a few tweaks. A few tweaks. Sometimes the jokes are stronger. Sometimes they're not. <laughs> I don't know about that. But the craziest <laughs> thing is that his footage isn't bad. You know? Uh-huh, he's yeah. worked on a lot of things. He, here's my problem. He thinks he got away with it. He did get away with it. Like you, it's not like you know, like anyone he's sending his reel to, they're going, "Oh wow, that's pretty clever." The same way that people are doing that to your reel, and that does get under my skin. Actually, you don't own meta reels, you know what I mean? But like, if someone steals the script, transcribes your script, and then tweaks it to make it their own in minor ways, that's not cool. That's not cool. Yeah. I guess the only way it would bother me is if he started beating me out for jobs, you know, but in general, I think it's, it's weird. I think it's weird. I'll admit that, but I think it's kind of cool that someone liked my reel so much that they copied it for being. <laughs> Did I ever tell I probably haven't told you this. I haven't told many people this, a, a, a Squaresville fan a few years ago sent me a link to a story that was basically a transcript of the um, pilot episode of Squaresville, my web series. Oh, really? Um, and they had won a college scholarship <laughs> as a result of it. Um, but here's the thing. They, uh, they tweaked it so that um, it was written from the point of view of the dead protagonist. No one dies in Squaresville. But they, their twist was they made they killed one of the main characters and then had them narrate everything. And it was called... And- Coffinsville. I, I, you know, I should find find it. And I didn't say anything, but so like the person was like, "Yo, this is messed up. This is definitely your show." And but I was like, "Well, I can't. I'm not gonna like rat out this plagiarist because it would cost them their college education." Yeah, I mean, I do believe that like the plagiarizers of, of this world ultimately get what's coming for them. <laughs> Like there's a limit as to how far you can get with plagiarism. Anyhow, well, anyway, don't forget yeah. I'm at O Kaplan on Instagram. That's right, and I am O Kaplan, <laughs> and I'm no, at Smitey Pileg <laughs> at Twitter, and I'm Okay a Plan on Facebook. And uh, just send me a message, and uh, when the article comes out, I will send it to you, and it will teach you how to make a director's reel that doesn't suck. Yeah, there you go. Though sometimes I, the I, answer is to just not make the real. Just not, not make it. Well, we'll see. I'll read the article. Maybe I'll cut one. I probably won't. You won't. Last thing before we talk to Stu, I want to remind people we do have a Patreon. It's patreon.com slash just shoot it pod. Uh, Patreon is a place you can support the podcast if you feel like you get anything out of it. Uh, you can give us a dollar a month, $2, $10. We'll get you a just shoot it podcast hat. I'm going to mail Mike Leonard his hat. Not tomorrow because I'm going to Disneyland. But on Thursday... And uh, you can have your hat too. So patreon.com slash just shoot it pod. We love all of our patrons. Just a, we do. a little bit more than the rest of the listeners. 
So yes, that's most right, of what you right. get in return is love. Just yeah. so you know, <laughs> uh, and, and a hat and uh, the getting your name at the top of an episode is legitimately cool. So yeah, you know. I wonder if there's people that like join our Patreon and then just stop listening and they never <laughs> they never cash out on that hearing their name. I price. do worry that they're gonna miss them hearing our names or us saying their names we shouldn't email people when we mention their names that would be well, pretty sweaty thirsty yeah sweaty desperate yeah i i both both are probably accurate but but yeah i hear what you're saying but you know, I, I don't think that's true i think it's actually more work is the real problem than you know oh, yeah. our, we hate work yeah that's why we just talk <laughs> instead of <laughs> that's right <laughs> work okay speaking of talking let's see what Stu pollard is up to 
uh, and I've been doing that for about 20 years now in some way, shape or form, maybe a little bit longer than that. I think the first thing we shot, which I also directed was in 98, but every single project for the moat with very rare exception, we've made more or less the same way in terms of the, the financial architecture to it, which was what we'll talk some more about tonight. But the last uh, seven years, I guess, six years now, I've been running a a company, you could call it a film fund, you could call it a production company. It's sort of a hybrid of those of those two. But I basically got out of the business for a while because I got demoralized. And then I taught for a while, which was actually the suggestion of one of my investors, which was great advice. And that kind of got my batteries recharged. So I we started the current iteration of Lunacy uh, back in 2015, after about two years of raising money. And what we've done in the last six years is invest in certain projects. We financed one of our own. We're developing like crazy, especially right now. And uh, and even in the spirit of trying to stay afloat, we're we're sort of doing some tangential initiatives, including the uh, the education thing. That's awesome. I mean, to me, the most interesting part about that is the realization that most film education in America is composed of demoralized filmmakers. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know that I would draw. I would draw that generalization. Oh, but, I would. I but, would one hundred percent would. Yeah, yeah, without a doubt. Every lesson. I've, why not to do this? Speaking, Stu, can you put in a good word at USC for me, buddy? Uh, I would, but the, the ironic thing about SC, where I, I was supposed to teach a class last summer and that got phased out, but uh, I taught there for, I think, eight years, and they're very big. On the, and this I totally support. They want a lot, especially their adjunct faculty, which there are a lot of. I don't know if that makes them unique in the film school environment, but but I taught for the better part of eight years having experience that was pretty dated. And, and about then in the middle of my teaching, we got this company launched, which was in no small part inspired by the kids I was teaching. So that's what I mean when I got my batteries recharged. But then we made out, went out and made this, this movie called Russ Creek, uh, which shot at the end of 16 and the, and the beginning of 17. The last semester I taught was the end of 16. So the irony is, is I, I think I hired 30 different kids from SC I shouldn't say kids because some of them were were people that were my contemporaries, including the director and the producers. But but I think 15 of my former students uh, contributed in some meaningful capacity. Our visual effects supervisor was a former student. A lot of PAs obviously were as well. But then I then it was like it's like being a studio musician in L.A. As soon as you take a week's vacation, somebody else steps in to that adjunct seat. So I've not really taught in a meaningful capacity at SC in, in about four years now outside of the summer uh, class and a couple of other kind of one-offs and I, and I miss it, but I also don't know that I've got the bandwidth for it. And again, that the irony is now I've got all this relevant experience uh, to teach from, but, but, uh, SC is a tough nut to crack and, and they made a real, uh, I don't mean to go on and on, but they made a, they needed to make a real push to diversify their faculty because there were people still teaching there from when I was a student and still are who are great instructors, but the student body makeup is now much different uh in in 2015 2020 than it was in 1995 right they're like you just cut the film with the blade i mean that's all we know editing i'd love to go down that path by the (laughs) i think there's one international student in my my what was my 507 my intro to film class at sc in the fall of 92 out of 18 kids in the most recent class i taught i guarantee you half of them were from halfway around the world and, and more than half of them were women. So, and those are those are fantastic changes to see. Just the faculty needed to play a little bit of catch up, in my humble opinion, as a straight white dude. 
Well, nowadays, if you want to learn from experienced filmmakers, uh, instead of going to USC, you just uh, listen to Just Shoot It. Just Shoot It. There you go. Uh, yeah. That's just Shoot move. It or, uh, or go to lunacyu.com. As hey, as there you we're go. We're shamelessly plugging our, <laughs> our, our uh, initiatives. But before we go on, I, it's worth plugging, actually, uh, speaking of plugging ourselves, Rust Creek. We talked with Jim McGowan. You can dig into our archives. And there's also a few other lunacy projects as well, I realized. Plus one, we had Jeffy and Andrew on The Short History of the Long Road. But all of those films are lunacy films i realized and we had their their filmmakers on so we'll have the links to those episodes in our show notes yeah and all fantastic people behind those those projects jen's a force of nature of course who we couldn't have made rust creek without and and gosh jeff and andrew are just on fire i think they've gotten like fire five or six things set up since since that came out and it just premiered like what it's trebecca 21 that premiered two years ago so they uh they uh, good for them and they're super nice guys and wildly talented so yeah and great yeah. podcast interviewers yeah i think we've heard enough about their success can we move on to talk about our attempt at success please thank there, you there you go, there you go. <laughs> um okay so and you've worked primarily in features right yeah almost exclusively we've done uh a, over the years a little bit of sort of webisodic content and a couple of commercials that were mainly favors for friends but but yes almost exclusively features and almost I think the cheapest one we've worked on was 50K and the most expensive one I've done is in the neighborhood of three, maybe not quite three. I didn't, I didn't run the budget 3, on that. So three, three million. Three million. There you go. So, so 50K on the low end, three million on the high end. Right. So I thought maybe we could run a few different scenarios by you just to kind of address the questions of people in, at various stages in their career that possibly listen to this podcast. And so my first question is, I'm a new filmmaker. I do not live in LA. I've never made a feature film before. Let's say I just finished film school, but not at USC or UCLA or AFI, somewhere in the middle of the country. Where they clearly clearly racked up less debt. So they're they're already off to a good start. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what uh, I have a, I have a few different scripts. I have a, a genre thing. I have a rom-com. What kind of advice can you give people about their first project and figuring out what the budget should be and how to get it financed. Let, let's even say they've got that shoebox of a few different ideas, right? And they're trying to pick up which is the one that I'm going to develop. That has the highest chance. Highest chance. Best chance. Yeah. So I'll, I will probably steer a lot into Pollyanna territory. And it's not just because I'm, I'm nursing a bourbon here. But I, I firmly believe that the, especially if you're going to go the, via the independent hustle and, and because it's kind of a bifurcated question. It's like, which project do I think I might get the most traction with in the industry from a script and meeting standpoint versus which one should I make? If I, if I, because a lot of people I, I don't, I don't think are dissimilar from me in that you get into independent filmmaking, regardless of your experience level or age, because you're just like, I want to frigging make something. And, and so you just become that unstoppable force and plow forward as opposed to playing the development game. We have a larger project now that, I hope it will get made. It's the, it's clearly the best script we've ever had, but it's a $10 million movie. And so that's not going to be something we, we go out and talk to dentists about financing. But back to your question, what I, the point I was trying to make is I think if you want to make something, it needs to be, honestly, this is the Pollyanna part, what you feel strongest in your heart, you really want to make. Uh, that, that you think you're capable of doing something great with because you desperately want to make this. And I think that that core passion, I, I don't want to underestimate the value of that because it, it's, you all know, it's so hard to get things made, let alone financed. 
it, if you don't have that drive, if you don't have that belief in like, gosh, I really need to make this. This is why I'm on the planet. I, that is, if I had multiple projects to choose from, that's the one I'd pick. I wouldn't say like, let's go make the horror one because the, the horror fair, market is fair high. enough. But, but just to push back a tiny, tiny bit, Stu, please. We've please. got let assume that every single person listening is incredibly passionate and and equally brilliant. And they all have a different script. Like every single person is driving along and they're like, Stu's talking about me, right? Sure, sure. Are, are there, uh, you're still in the, the business of placing bets on filmmakers, right? Yeah. That's yeah. what development is, right? So, so assume that everyone's a genius. Assume that everyone is ride or die committed. Are there any other things that, can, that would sway you one way or the other, right? You read great scripts all the time. And right. we read a lot of really crappy ones too, but sure. the, the, but those people don't listen to the podcast. Right. <laughs> of course. And, and I don't mind the term pushback on my answer, except I feel, I feel like that's a different question because the reason I say go with what you love is if you, cause one word to the, to the less experienced of it, one word advice, less experience I would give is if you've got like four ideas you think are really good, don't email someone like me or you guys or an agent with four different ideas because everybody's got a stack of stuff to read. Everybody's busy. So that's why you lead with the thing you feel strongest about. Now your question is if I'm, if there's 10 different filmmakers who already have made that choice, already have the passion project they think is brilliant, then you're right. It's a bunch of different variables. Uh, a, we got to like the material. So if we're talking about a writer director, we want to respond to the script. We also don't want to, we, we, because we read so much unsolicited material, we ask people to sign a release form. That's actually a, a litmus test for us too, because people push back on signing a release and don't get that any producer who's worth their salt is gonna ask you to do that to protect their own liability. It's not about stealing ideas. It's about like, if you wanna send me a golf movie and I've got a big scene with a golf, or a, a romantic comedy with a golf scene in it, I don't want you saying down the road that I stole your scene when I've been developing this script for 10 years and I just met you 10 minutes ago. So point being is we have to respond to the material. Don't be, if you've never signed a release form before, don't be scared about signing them, especially if, if the producer or, or company you're sending it to has any kind of track record, because they're not in business to screw people. They're in business to find new talent. And then, you know, if the material's solid and we get a meeting with somebody, we obviously, it's a little bit like dating in that respect, but from a professional perspective, which is, do we make a connection? Do we see the material the same way they do? Especially for lower budgeted projects, it's like, is the, is the if it's a writer director, are they bringing any help with the financing to the table? If it's their first movie and they're like, nobody knows who the hell they are. When you say they, any help, do you mean money? Is that Not necessarily mean? money, but like, you know, are they willing to go out on pitch meetings with us? Are they at all connected? Because if they never made anything before, it, they may have never asked people for money before. And and obviously, no one wants to spend their own money at least at first before you realize the, the realities involved. But if we want, if we are going to invest in you, then it would be nice if if you would help with that, right? Or at least be open to it. It's not a deal breaker, but it is a deal breaker if there's no sort of genuine connection, both creatively and sort of entrepreneurially with a writer director. And this is, this is strictly going the independent route. So uh, we met with a, a, a writer director team, I think about three years ago, I will not name names, 
Uh, this movie went on to get made and, and apparently is very good. But, uh, but when we met with them, they were very hard-headed. They demanded Final Cut. I don't think they ended up with that with the company that made it. But I, I, again, I'm not going to cast any dispersions. But we ended up walking away from that deal, even though we loved the script, because we did not feel like we could get along with them. And these were kids in their 20s. We're, my director of development's in his 40s. I'm in my 50s. We weren't going to tell them what movie to make, but we did want them to trust us that if they started getting in their own way, that's where our experience would would be valuable. So some of it's material, obviously. And if you look at it, I'm a big sports fan, so I, I sometimes compare things to the NCAA tournament. The The round one game is the material. The round two game is do we see eye to eye? We think we could, because it's making a film is a long-term partnership relationship. The the Sweet 16 game, you know, beyond that is is hopefully getting closer to production and getting financed. But but we have to like the people involved. We When we started the company six years ago, people asked us what genre, what was our kind of mandate? And the main thing we said was no assholes because it's that life's just too short. And and if, you've, if you're in your 20s or your teens and you've never made anything before with other people, then maybe you haven't had that negative experience. But once you've worked with somebody who's a jerk, it, it's like, this is too hard. Like, why Why would a personality make it make it harder? So hopefully that answers your question a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I, I think my question, Matt kind of skipped us to like what you look for in the movie, but I, I guess just to back up to more what I was asking is, do you think as a first-time filmmaker, you should think about marketability at all when you are coming up with a concept? Totally. And, and the, when I say it's like the project you feel the strongest about and that you love the most, that's, you know, I'm seeking somebody who's not going to give up, right. Who's not going to leave when the picture wraps, who's not going to be, you know, if it doesn't turn out perfectly, isn't going to abandon it. Uh, Cause I can't do that as a producer, right. At that point I'm on the hook for it, but it, no one should think their life story is the best story ever, unless you've either done something really tremendous or terrible. And you never want to make them go out and make something where it's only going to appeal to your friends and family. So yeah, I think you have to think about markability. It, it, I always, when the class starts it, uh, that I teach, I say, you have to be convinced you're going to make something great. So look, even if that is your life story, you have to have this almost madman, like you have to kept to convince yourself of that in a, in a sort of madman way that you're going to make something brilliant. Very few of us ever achieve that. But if you don't start with that objective, you're, you know, you're going to catch the coffee table square yeah. as opposed to the moon. I wonder if, if there sense. are filmmakers that were like, yeah, I thought this idea was like kind of cool. So I made it. I didn't know like if it was that good. And then uh, we won Sundance and now uh, I'm doing a Marvel movie. <laughs> yeah, I am. I am certain that, that there are exceptions to every every rule. I just think the, the person who's like, eh, let's go make a movie and see what happens those are the people who, who probably don't have an appreciate either. They've made so many films that they, they just go out and crank them out. Uh, or they haven't, they haven't been through the, the pitfalls and, and apexes, if you will, of what it's like to make a feature on a limited budget. Cause it's just, it, it just, it's, it's fun. It's amazing. There's arguably very few things out there as rewarding when you pull it off, but when you're in the thick of it, it's, you know, every day is a bunch of ups and downs. It's kind of all consuming. So would you say, okay, so you, you've decided what project, you, you are super passionate about it, you feel like there's an audience out there, you think it's marketable in a way, and you want to really make it, because you've sent you know the script out to a million 
people off some list you bought online of people in Hollywood and no one responded. Um, how do you figure out how much money you should spend on your first feature? Okay. So great question. And the, my, I'm very bullish on this and I'm somebody who back when I was in film school, I became known as the guy who budgeted and scheduled all the thesis films. Like I was, I was in demand. That's, that's how it doesn't mean tiddly poo, but just because it, like, even I go out and hire professional people to do budgets and schedules for me who do that for a living, who have, and, and we don't usually hire the same people to do two projects in a row. Cause we want somebody who's got experience shooting in that state under that incentive or under this budget level or with this genre, if there's tons of stunts and, and you get an experience enough UPM or first AD, which are the two, the two positions that are most qualified to do budgets and schedules for you. And they probably have worked under multiple circumstances. So, but and if you're young, not, you would not go for a line producer, UPM or first AD is kind of, or is that the same thing? I would define them as the same way. Uh, so yeah, line producer, uh, UPM, first AD, even a good second AD can probably pull it off because most of them aspire to be uh, firsts. But but I definitely think that's some of the best money you can possibly spend is is acknowledging, in, unless you're trying to do something for five grand, in which case budgets kind of go out the window, or maybe even at 50 grand, they kind of go out the window because so much stuff is going to be donated. Right. But if and you're going to... You, um, like, what's the range of what you would pay, you know, a, a line producer, UPM, to budget a script? So that's also a great question. And I, I probably need to update my, my teaching slides on this because I used to say you could find somebody for like, you know, 1500 to 2500 to do it. And you probably can if you're willing to. I was to. just talking to a, a, a pal and listener who was quoted. I could pull up the text, but I think he had three different people who said one said 500, one said 1500, and one said 2500. And I yeah. think he's going mama bear. I think yeah. it's, it's right in the middle. No, we just paid somebody, uh, it was either four grand or 4,500. I have to go back and look, which is the most I've ever paid. Now, this is that $10 million movie I'm talking about that was full union. I, I've never done a show full IA, full DGA. I've done movies that have, have dipped their toes in that water, but never as the lead producer. So I really wanted somebody who was going to ask all the right questions. So we pulled somebody out of you know, who works in a ton of very high level projects has, has indie experience, but also studio experience and TV experience. Uh, and so I felt it was worth that premium, but I was even surprised when I went out and the first two quotes I got were like, were like, I think four grand and 4,500. It was, it was like, Oh, inflation. Sure. <laughs> so, yeah. Or you're just paying that more for people that you really want. Uh, and and I, production is back. So like everyone is trying to like get those budgets in order. I, I agree. That's part of it too. Two of the people I went to couldn't even, give me a price because they were already on sets. While we're on the topic of budgets, actually, and jumping all over the place a little bit, at what point do uh, do filmmakers need to go ahead and get their budget made, right? Like, say they've got a, a script, you know, uh, maybe they're going to talk to a few, they've got a few people that they want to talk to. Do they do that before they talk to a production company, before they talk to salespeople, any of that stuff? Like, at what point is it, is it the right time to, to pull a favor and get your friend to put together a budget for you? I'll say this with the understanding that most people probably get this, but certainly the first thing you have to be sure of, especially before you're going to drop the, the two grand or the four grand or whatever the heck it's going to be. And I, and I will say this with the caveat that like, if you hire somebody to do it, make sure that you negotiate this in advance, get the breakdown, get the schedule and get the budget, get all, because the budgets 
debatable. You could debate whether or not the budget's accurate if they don't do that that work, uh, because that's what generates the numbers. And the other thing is, make sure you get the files when you're done, because there may the time that may lapse between when the budget is done and when the movie gets made, that could be a long time. So you may need to go back and do tweaks. That person who did it's going to be long gone. So if all you have is a PDF of what they handed you, and that may mean you have to shop around to a couple of mama bears because some people are like, oh, you can't see my my movie magic templates because of all my my magic tricks that are in there. I found that also can sometimes be an excuse for really sloppy work. Uh, so you want to make sure, you know, check references like anything when you hire somebody. But assuming the, the script is right, and I say that because I remember at some point long after I'd made, I think, two features, I thought this script was ready to go when I sent it to a friend of mine who was a UPM who did budget it for me as a favor or cut her rate significantly. And she wrote me back. She's like, I'm going to do this, but this thing, there's no way this thing's ready. And I was like, it's ready. And, and, and that product has yet to shoot. So I think she was right. But I think your question, Matt, is specifically like where, assuming the script's ready, when do you need to know that number pretty confidently when you're going well, out? Even, and, even if you think the script is ready, but like, yeah, I think you it's know. pretty early, you know, yeah, I mean, because if you want to make the movie, you need to, you need know to know how much it's going to cost. Yeah. And, and especially if you're going to go the indie route financing wise, because the most, and then this circles back to why would you hire somebody to do it for you? Because you want somebody who's objective. You start doing things yourself and it's like, ah, oh, the contingency works at 2%, not 10. <laughs> right. And, and like my mom know, will make food for everyone. You just took the words right out of my mouth. It's like all these things that, that actually have value you think you're going to hustle for, but that shouldn't be what your budget reflects. That, that certainly doesn't create a sustainable model long-term, but certainly in the eyes of what the investor might look at, you want to present to them as, as transparent a picture of, as, as possible as to what this thing's going to cost. So I, I like doing it, you know, I'd say before you want to get around to raising money, you should have a script, a budget, a lawyer, and a list. And uh, a lawyer so too. God, hold on. Let me sorry. Write this down. Uh, okay. But yeah, but so the budget's the second thing on the list. So I, something we've probably heard a lot, and I'm sure even ourselves said a lot, is like, you know, if we could get Seth Rogen in the movie, we'll make it for five million dollars. But if not, then you know, we could probably make it for like three fifty, with non-actors. Like, is that a a real thing that has ever actually happened to an indie filmmaker? Look, every single thing out there that you can imagine, I'm sure has happened especially with, with the explosion that's happened the last 15 years of just the sheer number of, of titles getting made. But the, I, I think you have to prepare for that contingency. And that's, that's one of the things I get asked most often is like, look, I, I have a, a million dollar, a half million dollar and a 250 version of this, this script. But it circles back to like the, the big star thing happening. I think, look, you could raise the million dollars for your sort of A-plus version of the film, and then suddenly at the 11th hour, an actor gets a hold of it for whatever reason or sheer chance. And and that changes the nature of the project. Maybe it makes it a studio project. You just give all the private equity that you've raised back uh, because it becomes a $10 million movie. So I, I think that scenario is one you can always be hopeful for as long as you're realistic. That Have it, you heard of that the, happening? Not, not, not personally, no. You know, who, I, the Palm Springs guys actually is like, the only real world version well, of that story. But, that but did they have equity? Of. I guess they had not raised the money yet, but they had. They were planning on making the movie regardless of who they right. had attached. Yeah, yeah. they did as, have as much money version. as they could manage yeah. to get, and they thought yeah. it was going to be like a hundred thousand dollar film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
the uh, the more applicable scenario, I, I think, to that question is the person who 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 sets out to raise a million, and and, and that means there's going to be every single location that you want, and you're going to have your process trailer for your driving scenes, or or whatever bells and whistles go towards building that budget up to a million, and then you go out and start raising money, and you end up raising three fifty, which is still a lot, especially for a first time filmmaker, a lot of money enough to go out and make a film. But you have to decide in terms of, of ethically communicating to your the people who put that money up. The people look, invested in a million dollar movie, not a three hundred fifty thousand dollar movie. Exactly. Yeah. We could go make a C plus version of what we pitched you, or what I usually tell people is like, look, that's real money if you've raised that much and you've probably raised it from people who really believe in you as a filmmaker or a filmmaking team. So go back and be honest with them. Offer them their money back. Chances are they consider it spent. And anybody who really is in a hurry to get it back, you don't want to be in business with anyway. Uh, and then tell them, look, we are going to take longer to try to raise the rest of this. Or we have this other project we're super excited about. It's our tone of voice. And it's smaller, but we think we can knock it out of the park for 350 So you sort of recalibrate. And I think that's a, that's a smart uh, way to go about that scenario where you sort of are aiming for one level and maybe fall a little bit short. But you always have to be honest with the people who've who've put in because the, you know, you Matt, you may, may be making, I mean, I'm in my fifties now and I'm still making movies this way. So you might be making movies this way for a long time. And the last, the, the single most important thing I would try to get across to, to anybody listening is if you're going to raise money from other people for these high risk passion projects, then you've got to be honest with them about the risks involved. And because the, the, the idea is if they invest an appropriate level knowing the risks and believing in you and your project, they'll be repeat customers because they won't feel swindled. What a lot of people do is fall into that trap where they oversell either the potential return or how big the movie's going to be or who's going to be in it. The money gets spent and, and everyone's disappointed because not only do you potentially not make your money back, but you've just you, you've misled people on the realities of, uh, of how difficult these things are before they even start. And, and most people really, this is sort of a, a duh type thing, but you'd be shocked how many people appreciate honesty. Will it, will it cause some people to walk away immediately? Yes. But the people that don't are like, oh, so, you know, what's your plan B if this doesn't work out? And, you know, you need to go through and rehearse a lot of these questions, but it's a lot of people made money by being entrepreneurs and, and most entrepreneurs even the famous ones didn't hit it out of the park on their first time. It's just no one talks about those because it's the it's 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 the one that blew them up that, that everyone writes about. Well, I, I what I think is interesting about this this thought, Stu, is that another way of saying it is that there's there's really one right answer or right one right number for this movie. If you want to hit it out of the park, and it's an expensive idea, it's an expensive movie. If it's a, a great idea that costs fifty thousand dollars, that's a di- that's a horse of a different color. But like, don't don't sell someone on something that you can't hit out of the park, basically. But maybe your idea, maybe come up with a cheaper idea. I think the the you know fifteen twenty years ago when I was first getting started, there was sort of the okay, here's the shoot it on thirty five budget, and here's the shoot it on crappy digital budget, and it's the same script. But yeah, I think you're I think you're exactly right, and there's some nuance in there. Obviously, if you had a million dollar budget and you raised 900, chances sure, are good you can out. figure out a way to get yeah, to the yeah. finish line on, on that in a responsible way. 
But if it's a million dollar movie and you raise, like I said, 350, then it's probably time to check yourself. Well, what about the idea of raising enough money for production and hoping, figuring Figuring, that, figuring out post that you'll get, you'll be able to raise that money once people see how freaking awesome Kathy Griffin is and that one scene that she's barely in. Yeah. So this is a, this is a softball question for me because I have a, a very firm and direct answer, which is if you're, especially if you're a first timer, if you've got some experience or you have, or you're a first timer and you have some experienced people around you, I might bend on this a little bit, but please, please, please raise everything you need to finish your film before you start. Because most of these things lose money. And, uh, and the biggest reason why they do is because they're undercapitalized. And, and probably the biggest reason they're undercapitalized is, is exactly the scenario you described. It's like, hey, we've got enough to get it in the can. Let's go. Because I read this article in, in Filmmaker last year about this guy who won Sundance. I'm being, being uh, right. hypothetical. He did his here. audio mix after he got into Sundance. He mortgaged his house. Like he, he did everything, you know, and, and just figured out. And then he raised the rest of the money once they got in, which is. And Robert Rodriguez never did anything again since. Well, exactly. Again, exceptions to every rule, but, but nobody writes about all the train wrecks that didn't get in. There's, there's 4,000 features that don't get into Sundance every year. And, and I guarantee you a significant percentage of those probably will never see the light of day because they're not finished. They've sent work, which is another, you know, sort of crazy move to do is like something incredibly competitive. And if you don't know anybody on the programming committee and you're, you're sending in something that's not your best effort, like, Oh, it's a rough cut that we threw together three weeks after we finished shooting. They're going to love it. Yeah. Maybe there, there are, just like saying you're going to make money in this business, there's always examples of outliers you can hang your hat on. But it's actually uh, really interesting. I've never, it's the most obvious advice I think we've ever heard, but I've never heard anyone say it, which is, you know, it's better to not submit a work in progress. <laughs> again. Yeah. Because it, it, it's, everyone gets in a hurry. That That's sort of the, the big moral of the story. You're like, Oh, we've raised some money. Let's go shoot. Oh, we've yeah. got oh, the, the Tribeca deadline is April. Let's do this or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And we wrapped on March 25th. It, it's like, it makes no sense. It's like pick a different festival, you know? Sure. Or if, if Sundance is the one, if you made a Sundance movie and then wait a year. Right. I mean, I told the investors we're submitting to Sundance. That's how we got the money. Yeah, and it, look, that might be true, right? That's okay. It does. But yeah, wait, wait a year, and and then you can really develop a a a wonderfully coherent strategy of how to make the best possible first impression. It's easy to underestimate how much better your movie gets with every incremental step. You know, like, so says like, the guy who just mixed something. So yeah, yeah, exa- exactly. I right? laughed so, at jokes for the first time tonight. I've been looking at this movie for a year straight, and it's like, oh right, that's a little more audible. That joke is stronger, and that that happens in every single step. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Matt loves I, loud I, jokes. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> or I'm going uh, deaf. One of the two. <laughs> this idea of above the line and below the line, and uh, what Matt said that there is a, a number for every movie. But that number really is a below the line movie, right? When someone says you actually need 350,000 or you need a million dollars to make this movie, this is unrelated to talent, a director, a fancy person, sales, right? Like these people that are kind of taking more money to give your Sure. There your are movie hard costs. There are hard costs and then there are, are flexible costs that maybe you know, create yeah, more and value. Yeah, and, and in terms of your in, in that scenario, you're paying your SAG cast 
scale at whatever contract level you're at. You're not working most likely with a DGA or, or WGA director or writer. So, and they likely have a huge stake in the back end uh, because they're, they're going to work for well below what they, what their going rate might be. So, yeah, I, I, I think you're exactly right. It, it's, we're talking not so much about just a below the line number, but a, a below the line number plus an above the line where nobody's being compensated aggressively because everybody's kind of in it to win it. And, uh, and all those above the line folks, uh, understand that, that, and you, again, you got to play the back end game a little bit, but, but all those above the line folks understand that, you know, you take the hit on this one because hopefully it sets you up to do the next one. Right. So when you're talking about a budget and you say it's a $2 million movie, cause we're going to give a million dollars to Courtney Cox and a million dollars for the production that that's not how you should think about it. You should think we need a million dollars to make this movie. And then this name adds this value to the movie. So this is how much we can pay them. Right. Is yeah. And if you, I got pitched a project, I think three or four years ago where I got pitched it multiple times and this movie ended up getting made, but, uh, but at a much different, it was originally pitched to us as a $4 million film. And I think John Cusack was getting going to get like a million and a half for three days of work or something like that. And, and it was, and it was all this sort of, of house of cards. And this project came to us from very, respectable sources, but it was like, if we get Cusack in this small role and or on the poster, I would presume, then we wipe out Asia in terms of pre-sales, which I think would more than pay for his, his salary. Now he ended up not being in the movie and the movie became like a, a $1.5 million thriller at that point. So, and we actually got involved in that a little bit, but so you'll, I'll, I'll leave it to your listeners to, to do the Tetris on our, our website to figure out which movie I'm talking about. But um, but going looking at that from the other perspective, it, it gets back to that point we made earlier, which is if, if somebody comes in late in the game who is literally a game changer, then I, I think you can either go back to your investor pool or suddenly you're going to get those production companies that weren't interested in your little indie because no one of note was in it. Well, now you now you have equity, which no one wants to spend their own money. So if you raised a million bucks and now you have an actor who will do the lead role for an extra million. That's a really compelling package. I think you can take around town and none. And I don't think any of your uh, core investors would mind this, this gets tricky, but you know, usually in a scenario like that, the, the, the people who put the equity in will end up taking a back seat to whoever comes in later to close it out. But yeah, you, you know, expand upon that a little bit though, Stu, because I think that that isn't a, a complicated and, sort of interesting thing if some seems unfair in a way it totally seems yeah it dilutes their shares right and also they're no longer they're lower in the waterfall right so so walk us through that worse like the last in first out right (laughs) worse than dilution it is it is exactly what you said matt it it it, uh, i think both of you said it it pushes you further down the food chain so you could be in a scenario where your equity investors put up a million somebody comes in and and loans the project a million but since they're a creditor, they're the first to recoup. So the selling point to your investors is like, hey, we still own the whole thing. But then the movie only goes out and grosses a million five or nets out a million five after all the bills are paid. And so the 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 person who loaned gets their loan back plus some interest. And the, the equity investors who made the whole thing happen to begin with get half their money back. And if that strikes you as unfair or immoral or wrong, I totally agree with you. I I but you know, it, it's 
it's how a lot of these things get made is you start with equity and that serves as collateral to borrow money. And the, and the, and the hope is, is that the project makes enough money to clear all the hurdles and pay everybody back in the waterfall. But there's definitely a, a risk there. I do think in many respects, it might sound unfair, but if you were to tell anybody who's got, you know, if you told me this, for example, like the difference is, is we're going to make a $2 million film I own uh, a big chunk of, with a very no-name cast or, or up-and-comers or whatever the a nice thing to say is about people who don't translate to, to I won't even say box off anymore, just downloads or, or streams versus a $4 million movie where I take a deeper place in the waterfall, but suddenly we've got a much bigger director or somebody who creates a lot of value for the thing. Like that's that may be a risk proposition that if it's explained properly to savvy equity investors they're they're open to taking is it as the saying goes it's like i don't know if this is perfectly applicable but somebody said this at a seminar i, I attended years ago and i love it because it applies to so many different types of deals but that's simply like a slice of the watermelon is bigger than the entire grape and so you you sometimes have to to think like and, and i think that's why you know the gigantic movies that get made uh, i have a friend of mine who's shooting a movie overseas right now and it's a it's a 50-day shoot it's a 20 million dollar movie and I'm sure if they go over a day or two, they will spend the money. They're pot committed at that point. So it's, it's the same thing with what these, the studios spend on marketing films. It's like it, it all becomes about what can we do to recoup this massive investment. And if we have to spend more in advertising to, to better our chances, we'll do that. Uh, so anyway, that's a little bit of a... Sounds you know, like the business I would like to be in. I, I would like. Well, wouldn't we all? Because we know on the bigger <laughs> movies, everyone's paychecks bigger, and sure. and uh, it's like, oh, it's shoot two more days. Great, that's that's two more Deal. days for me to work. Sign me up. So. Yeah, yeah. My last budget question is: from your experience, the films you've been involved in, or the filmmakers you know, what's the most money a first-time filmmaker has gotten for their first movie? And let, let's even I'm going to plus it and say there's the. First-time filmmaker who's done nothing versus the first-time filmmaker who it's like, you know, they, maybe they had were a short, DP, they had a short, you know, they've they've got a. It's not impressive by studio standards, but it's not they're not totally green. I don't know if I can. Obviously, the the I will answer this question, but you'll you'll you may come back to me with some more qualifiers. First off, I don't think I've ever worked with anybody who's never made anything before. Now, first-time feature directors, I've worked with a lot of them. But all of them have done, you know, at least shorts before. So you sort of know what you're, you're getting into. What's the smallest body of work you've worked with? Like just a great thesis? I would say, well, like True Adolescence, for example, which is Craig Johnson's first film. He's gone on, I, I think he's on his fifth or sixth feature now. And he's directed a lot of episodic stuff. That was a project I joined as a producer after the, the train had left the station. And I don't know that I'd seen any of Craig's prior work and true adolescence started off as his thesis at NYU and morphed into this feature because he had this, this sort of force of nature produce him, producer behind him named Thomas Woodrow, uh, who, who like got 1600 on his SAT, like remarkably smart guy. That's back when 1600 was the highest you could get. I don't know. I think the numbers have changed, but Tom went to Yale was a great, great guy. And these guys hooked up at NYU grad school and I'm not sure how they found I think it might have been because I'd done a podcast a million years ago, but it, it was, uh, but I got involved with them and that movie was critically acclaimed. It got sold. It did not sell for anywhere near what it cost, but that movie is like such a home run. 
by every other metric. It is how the movie Hump Day got made. Or, and I can't remember what there, I think there was one film that Lynn and Mark did before Hump Day. That all became, Lynn Shelton was our still photographer on that. She took that gig because she wanted to meet Duplass. And anyway, the, the, the gaffer on that, that film is now a big time DP. I'm going to forget his name, but anyway, it, it's like that movie has the most insane family tree and I'm on it too. I, I, I don't know that I've got quite the body of work as some of those other folks, but if you, if you invested in that and didn't get your money back, I don't think you're looking at that as like, gosh, I lost five grand. I think you're looking at, I invested in Craig's first feature and now he's done seven more. And this and next six, movie is the skeleton twins. Yeah. After that. People and, and, know. A few people came along uh, for the ride on that one, including Jenny Lee, who was the editor. So anyway, I, I'm, I'm tangenting a little bit, but that's a classic example of a, of a film that I just think has paid so many dividends for everybody who worked on it. And if everybody invested in it for the right reasons, I didn't do the business plan for that film, but I did help raise some uh, some additional funds for it. Well, so what was the budget on that, on True Adolescence? You know, I... I will ballpark that at around half a million. The challenging thing on that for me was, as, as I said, hey, raise all your money first. They basically did. And well, they got it. They had enough to get into post, but there was some music that they really wanted. They're, they're like, they did the thing where one of the actors, I think it's Iron Man, sings it on camera, you know, because it, it's like about these, they're lost in the woods and he's trying to motivate himself. So we had to hunt down the rice to that. There were some other post costs. So they had enough to get into post, but they certainly didn't have enough to finish. And again, this was this was one I give this lecture all the time, as you all know. And they they I think we were at the Nashville Film Festival years ago, and Craig came up to me after he sat through the lecture and he's like, I just want you to know that I will never ever make a movie like this again. Like, I'm grateful that you were you were on the the ride for this. He's like, but I totally agree. Because any anybody, it's one thing if you've never done it and you hear me preach about raising all the money first before you shoot. If anyone out there has done this where, you ha- where you're undercapitalized and you're scrambling for finishing funds, which almost invariably, by the way, also come in senior to those early investors who almost always are people you know uh, or have some sort of connection to, you know, no one wants to do that. It's a miserable experience to, to either have to go back to the people that you, who've already bet on you and, and ask for more, or once they say, no, I'm tapped out, having to go raise money from people that are like, yeah, I'll do it. But I want to be last in, first out. To answer your 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 question specifically about what project was was a first time director or highest budget and best return, probably plus one. Uh, and those guys had done a lot of stuff before, but it was their first feature. It was a it's a home run movie in so many ways. I mean, their careers have taken off, the casts have taken off, uh, and the movie's paid for itself. So that's and what was and that great, budget? That was a great a great movie around a million. I, I, I want to say it was either right under or right over. Yeah, I love that movie. The Yeah, because you, you do hear about a lot of like these people that are straight out of film school and they've got a project. And they're like, yeah, it's a three to five million dollar. And you're, you're like, well, you're you're never going to get that unless you attach someone very famous or when have some. And when thing. you say attach someone very famous, you really mean like went to high school with someone who got famous. Or got a studio attached, like won the nickels, you know, and like, well, that's a, that's a tough lesson to learn too. Right. Because it's, we've all been in the business long enough. We all have great friends who are actors, many of whom are successful working actors are not necessarily famous, but I, I think really your objective should be when you're, you're casting a project early in your career is just get the best possible actor you can, not the most famous, just get 
there's so many actors out there who are really great and never get the opportunity. And, and so that's why I, I, that's how people break. You give people who are really good an opportunity. It doesn't matter if they're 18 or, or, you know, 58. Uh, the, the challenge is, is when you're like, oh, what we're going to do is spend an extra $65,000 to bring this, this person in who we've all heard of for four days or, or three weeks or whatever on a Schedule F deal, who's not going to make the movie appreciably, certainly not necessarily better. They may not make it worse, but you know, it's a paycheck for them. And it's not necessarily going to make your film stand out anymore at AFM or to a potential distributor. Um, and in some cases, it can kind of it can kind of wreck the movie if you put somebody too recognizable in with a bunch of people who aren't that recognizable because you're like, oh, that's so like uh, Iron Abbey is a movie I worked on years ago. I would put that right up there with Plus One as a just fantastically executed and really funny romantic comedy. It, uh, I don't know if you all have seen that one or not, but highly recommended. It. It's like a, before Woody Allen became tarnished, if you just look at him as a filmmaker, uh, and in theory, a lot of people respect him still as a filmmaker. This is like a female's take on dating with a lot of sort of, it's a very New York film. It's, it's a very Jewish film. It's very fun. And, and it's really good. But we, we could not sell that thing to save our lives. I was not terribly involved with that process. Finally got Magnolia to pick it up, but not nearly. The, the filmmaking team had made the movie Kissing Jessica Stein a couple of years previously and sold that to Searchlight for well more than that cost. And Iron Abbey is a, a fantastic movie, but it suffers a little bit from stunt casting because there's like three or four Jason Alexanders in it, and he's actually great in it. They're all great in it, but but there's a few people who just pop up for like one scene. I think Chris Parnell and Daryl Hammond are both in it. And it's sort of like, they're hilarious. But they also bump a little bit because you're like, you're like, oh, oh you're breaking the world of that you're creating. Yeah, and, and plus one does, you know, uh, uh, Beck Bennett's in plus one, so it's like there's a little bit of of disassociation there. But he's actually playing a pretty straight character. Like he's not trying to be funny. He's the he's the groom in the very first wedding, uh, and makes a little and has a very heartfelt scene at the end. So at least in that instance, they're not trying to be in any way comical per se. So anyway, right. Yeah, that's really interesting. The point being is like below a certain budget level, get the other thing is that, that when you have those actors who haven't broken yet and they're just they put their time in, again, they may be successful working actors because of commercials or guest roles on episodic or whatever, those people really want to be there. And and over a four week shoot where your food's probably B minus, B plus, you might be in the middle of nowhere. Like you want that community theater vibe. You want people who are just like, this is awesome. Yeah. Like, what are we, we shooting love today? Domino's pizza. Yeah. Yeah. I love, love the double cheese. Um, I have a, another question that I feel like Matt and I kind of are on different sides of it. Actually, I don't know, Matt, you correct me if I'm wrong, but you mentioned about true adolescence. This is a movie that basically launched the career of this director. A lot of other people, Mark Duplass was in it, was on his path, did not make its money back, but everyone that invested in it is stoked because they they started this fire. I don't you, know everyone yeah, who know. invested in it, so I can't say that definitively, okay, but, right. but I would be shocked if if anyone feels negatively about that, that film. That, right. That, it, it, there might be one or two people because for reasons not related to this conversation um, that I won't get into, but but anybody who just put in a little bit it's like 
you know, first off, I, again, if you're selling it the right way, no one has the expectation of getting rich. You know, you're, I mean, a, a freaking two X return in a film is a home run. Yeah. So, but I anyway. guess my point is, is that this is a movie that did not make its money back, but launched careers. And I think a lot of times, like, I think launching a career, like if I made a movie that launched a career, whether it's my career or some people, uh, the cast or something, sometimes I look at that as more valuable. Like if you made a movie that won Sundance, but lost a ton of money versus if you made a horror film that for a hundred grand and made a million dollars or a lot of 50,000. Right. I think, like, that, I, I think that's yeah. the better analogy, right? Yeah. If you, if you it's, made a million dollars off of a hundred thousand dollars, everyone would be stoked. But like making okay, so, a, a good amount of money, but not a, a an astronomical amount. But right. I, Did, I think I know where you're headed toward. Right. Does yeah. that make you as a, the filmmaker more marketable? Like, I guess for me, if I had the option of making a, a money losing movie that would become famous, you know, <laughs> I'd take that over a money-making movie that no one's ever heard except for the super niche audience somewhere. What, what's your take on that? Well, I mean, I, it sounds like you're asking from the filmmaker's perspective. And the so if we look at just the writer-director... Yeah, or even as an investor, like, wouldn't you be... If you see two people, this this um, she made a $100,000 horror film, made $150,000 back, and then this other director, she made a $500,000 film that made $100,000 back, but it won Sundance Grand Jury Prize. Who do you the, invest in for their next film? I would say probably both. Um, the, the, and I, that I, I, cause I don't, I don't, I think. What you know, a lovely answer, Stu. That's great. Well, uh, thank you. I'm running for <laughs> office. Uh, so I'll, I'll, uh, I'll try my best to appeal to everybody. So sure. But, but I, I, you could probably throw a third scenario in there where let's say that half million dollar film doesn't win Sundance and that maybe the director was difficult to deal with. The movie doesn't make its money back, but it gets into Sundance and it's kind of like, it's not an ideal experience. So that's where you would probably say, okay, you know, I didn't make my money back. I didn't have the best time. We didn't win. Maybe you don't get into Sundance, maybe you play a lesser festival. So uh, I I think that scenario is one where you, you, you could certainly make that, if the movie's good, you make that a positive experience by treating everybody with respect, showing them a good time. Maybe you don't play a single festival. You just throw a hell of a, a private premiere. You know, that alone can get people excited you know you put a red carpet out in front of a theater and people who've never gotten to experience that before especially once you get out or you do it in la but you do it in smaller towns too it's all about you know i I talk a lot about psychic profit when i teach and i think i've stolen the thoroughbred metaphor on this show actually yeah well there you go well that yeah yeah, but but by all but not everyone's listened to all you know totally fine episodes of the show but and remember a hack steals an artist borrows. So you've simply sure. borrowed. Uh, <laughs> and with, with my blessing. Uh, but the, uh, I think, I think we own the domain psychicprofit.com and that probably now points to our educational content. But, uh, but, but the whole idea is like, can you create an experience that, that people enjoyed so much they want to replicate? People are investing, whether it's a film or any other kind of startup, in most cases, they're investing disposable income, right? This is, this is by definition, money they don't need to survive. This is their, their money to, in, instead of taking one an extra trip to Vegas this year or buying an extra racehorse, they're going to bet on you. And if you can deliver, because most people, racehorse deals don't work out, 
but if you can deliver something where the, the equivalent is, I got my picture taken in the winner's circle for a few brief moments. I thought we were going to win. Uh, we got a little money back. And I have got some killer stories to tell. And you know, all of us only get so much time on the planet. So if part of your pitch is the time you spend with us is going to be time that you're grateful you did. That where that that gap between what you put in, if there's a shortfall financially, if you can fill that in with experience, I think that's very real. Like again, you could you could accuse me of being a little Pollyanna there, but and there's an underbelly to that too, which is simply or underside is probably a more attractive way to put it, which is you're not screwing people, right? You you have gotten them to invest an appropriate level where they're comfortable, where they're rooting for you sink or swim. And then if you, if you get to one of those scenarios where it's either a modest profit financially or you make no money back, but it has, it has had an impact on, on a lot of, especially of young people's careers. I totally agree with you. I think that's, I think that's a home run. And that's the type of thing where people are like, how do I do that again? You know, and it's very difficult to replicate. Not a lot of movies can can be as successful, in my opinion, as True Adolescence was. Well, so Matt warned me that we would be able to talk to you for ten hours and just barely scratch the surface. But I, I have one kind of final question that's a, a little bit a, more about the end of the road for people that are trying to get their films financed with someone like you, which is of all the pitches you've seen and projects you've seen that have come to you to either produce or to help finance, what materials should people come to you with? Like what, what gets you excited about a project? Is it a script, the budget, the team? Like what, if you had advice for people that are preparing to pitch their movies to people, um, and I know that there isn't a one answer that fits everything, but, but what's your, what's your advice? So there's sort of two questions there. What would I tell somebody and what do I respond to? So what I would tell someone, whether you're looking to bring a project to us or anybody else is do your homework. It is, it is insanely easy to, there, there actually was this article, I think it was in, it was either the Times or the Wall Street Journal, I think it was just yesterday, but it was like how much you can, how much hackers can learn from your social media profile. Like, like literally, because you get wished happy birthday, it's like, people are like, oh, did you go to the, you know, the, the Georgetown game last night? Or, yeah. I always ask my know. friends like what their mom's maiden name was. Like... <laughs> Happy birthday. What was your mom's original yeah. last name? But point being is like, you don't have to do, we have an expression in our, our classrooms called GTS, which is Google that shit. When you, when somebody asks a really dumb question, which is like, what kind of movies does lunacy make anyway? And they're like, why don't you go to our freaking website? And you can see we, we sort of uh, have everything under the rainbow. So do your homework, no matter who you're going to go pitch, because it will help you. It'll help you list, you know, narrow down your list of who you're going to pitch and it will also help you in the room to say, we thought you this would appeal to you if you get in the room. Like, this would appeal to you because, like, we love this. We love plus one or whatever. In terms of what we're looking for right now, it, to, to be candid, it's like we're, we're pretty lean. So we're not on the hunt for stuff. We're really focused on on things we're developing. But as I said earlier, we, we have this no assholes policy. So if we read something we love and we still try to – somebody reaches out to us and says, hey, can you read this? Most and so likely, literally just a script. They just give you a PDF of a script without a dip, a lookbook or a pitch deck or attachments or anything. I, that's how it starts, right? They, they pitch us on something. But again, if someone knows how to, like I'm not a, a here's another thing. If you send me a, a opening email that's like six paragraphs, I'm like, doink. Like that's just, you know, keep it brief. 
keep it specific. Tell me why you're reaching. Like I get a lot of people reaching out to me who are like, I'm from Kentucky and I'm a filmmaker. I want to make a film there. Your work's inspired me. You say that to me, I'm hooked. Like I will read that script. Even if it ends up being awful, I'll read it because I've got a soft spot for that. So, but we're, we're more than just a, a Kentucky company, but yeah, but you, you know how the game's playing or it's like, if the script is good and it's accompanied by stunning visuals that are really in a really thoughtful lookbook, like you get one chance to make a first impression and you get one chance to basically make a second impression. And then after that, if you're great in the room, it's like, okay, we're not really looking to expand right now, but how do we work with this person? Cause we love the material and we think they're great. And, uh, and everything about them screams like, we want to be on that train. So it's, it's really about just you know, taking it super seriously. And also like dating, you're not going to get along with everybody. So some meetings will be duds and you, you cross those off your list and you move on to somebody who actually likes you. Yeah. Have you ever taken up a project off of a short and like a treatment or a, a proof of concept or something that's not just like a 110 page script? Yeah, I'd, I'd say like this this one project a couple of years ago. We You we can't did not say yes this. to the questions like that to Oren. That's all he wants oh. to hear. Oh. Like, I don't well, want to write a script. I'm going to make a three-minute sizzle. Oren would much rather and, uh, make a short than, you know, than write a, a cool script. Deck. Well, I'm these, giving him a hard time. These these guys had a good script. This is the, the script we almost got involved with with the two young filmmakers who, who probably will go on to great things. But but we we didn't jive with them on a couple of of places where we thought we could, we could help them. And, uh, but part of what hooked us was they had this amazing short. They had a really good script that, that we, you know, we're in the development business. So when we, we see a great script, there's like, there's always ways it can be made a little bit better or more producible for the number. But this script, the, the short that they did, which was not a sizzle piece per se, it was just something that was sort of in sync genre wise with the, with the feature which is, is, is contemplating going that route. I would much more rather see a short that has nothing to do with the feature, but has, but, but demonstrates capabilities that should get tone. Yeah. Tonally consistent and, uh, and, and maybe scope consistent if that's possible rather than saying, Hey, here's a scene from my, my feature with these people that we're, we never intend to put in it. Hmm. That is a good tip. Cause I do think we hear that a lot. I mean, there's like the whiplash story, but that, you know, there's a few, a few stories we've heard, but, but not many of people filming one scene and then saying like getting their movie made off of that. Or even, you know, shooting a, a sizzle that's consistent with the tone. I think it's a, it's easier said than done. You know, trailers are really, really hard to shoot because like, you know, a trailer is just the best parts of a movie, right? So you kind of have to shoot the whole movie before you can cut the trailer, um, but I, I love the idea of a tonally consistent short that maybe is self-contained, you know, is more about, you know, it is a complete story basically rather than. You can even like, of... like we're working on a project now where, where, and again, there's exceptions to every rule. So you, you sort of take this all with a grain of salt, but, but in that vein, I think it's an interesting idea to do. We had one project like this that fell apart for the pandemic. We're working on another one now where it's like, we're going to make a short to to try several things one is to figure out exactly what this is kind of like a cross genre picture so we want to make sure we can nail the tone but we also are sort of trying to do something that's from the same world so i think it's not quite a prequel it's but there's like one character that kind of in, in, insignificant character in the feature that has a big role in this short and it's all part of their backstory 
but you don't need it. So it's sort of like if we execute it, we have this little extra asset that maybe that ends up on the Blu-ray or somewhere online, we leak it um, if we if we kill it. But if we, if we do a crappy job, then it's just us sort of putting on training wheels to say, can we do this blending of genres successfully? And if and we, we learn from it and nobody ever sees it. That's great. So you mentioned uh, a handful of things of like, what to say in a pitch, right? Like you said, personal connection, being humble. They were hinting at a few things. Are there things that you see that are kind of easy, quick no's? Not that you're dismissive, but you know what I mean? Like like things that maybe yeah. you would you had mentioned that like putting in. If someone emails you with six paragraphs of information, then you probably won't read it. That's a that's a good one. I, I will say we have sort of this, there was this legendary meeting that we had. My uh, Harris McCabe, who's our head of development, and he, I guarantee you, he would, if I told him, you remember the notes meeting and, and he would be able to tell you exactly what happened. He's got a better memory than I do, but we literally had, I think it was two in this film. I don't think ever, I don't think ever got made, but it's just, it's like when you're in the room, be receptive to notes. If you're getting them from people who are your potential partners, whether it's creative producing or because it's just, it's just a conversation. But he, these guys just were like, oh, yeah, that's, you know, I respect your, I don't even know if they said respect your opinion. It was just like, no, we're not going to do that. That's that's not the film we want to make. And we're like, oh, okay. You know, that's that's really good to know because now you're making a movie we don't want to make. Because cause like you have like a, B, a C plus here and we want to, we think, we think we're the guys to help you make it an A. And so the and it would have taken very little effort and there was one producer in the room who was a dear friend of ours who was just like this uh when the writer directors were saying this and it, it just it takes so little and this is even more true on like the agency and the industry side like you just have to play that improv game of yes and right it's like even if you totally disagree with the note you've got to learn the art of diplomacy with it so um anyway it doesn't mean you're a kiss ass but the idea is get to the next meeting, you know, as soon as you're in one, make, make the next one happen. So that's a big one. Uh, I think I'm huge on thank you notes. So anybody who, who we give time or effort to, whether it's sometimes we'll just send coverage to somebody and say, hey, it's not for us, but we'll send you a report. If we get a thank you note back, like we, at least that person goes in the, the like, gosh, decent person file. You know, and maybe there's another script they want us to read in two years. That door remains open because they were respectful. Uh, and then I don't, I don't know if I've got any other big don'ts. Other, there's like, don't pay for a letter of intent. Don't, don't Hold ever on. take money. That's a good one. Let's talk about that. So you said don't pay for a letter of intent. Does that mean you were against letters no, of no. intent in general? No, I, I think letters of intent can work. I think if it, I think letters of interest can work, it, it's like anything that is properly represented, like, Hey, I'm the agent for Kevin Costner and, and Kevin has read this script and is, is potentially interested in this, like, you know, older, whatever, whatever role he would play third supporting lead or something. And, uh, that makes no sense, but you know what I mean? I'm now two reverends in, but 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 it's like what you don't want to do is is pay that agent or that actor ten thousand dollars for that letter because that letter is invariably going to say it is contingent on availability, it's contingent on us agreeing on a rate, it's contingent on like my entire entourage getting producing credits. It'll have some sort of BS in there 
because most people are like, hey, yeah, we like this material. You're, you're welcome to represent that we're interested pending working out details. So I think if you just, you call it that, then that's fine. But you don't, and you also don't want to attach anybody who doesn't matter. So it's like, hey, my best friend's an actor and he's done a couple of guest spots on this show. I love him. I think he'd be great for this. But I'm not going to attach him because he'll do it no matter what because he's my friend. And and I hope he does it. But frankly, if somebody famous comes along that can make the movie better, you know, I'll get him on the next one or I'll give yeah. him another role. Yeah, friends, nobody needs them. <laughs> um, well, on that note, Stu, this has been awesome. Thanks Thanks so much. And we, um, and I know people can find out more about you and your movies on a, a little website I go to called imdb.com, but also they can find out more about the, your education program at lunacyu. Lunacyu.com and then lunacyproductions.com is where all our movie stuff is. And the two sites are pretty, pretty connected. So you get to one, you should be able to find the other. Cool. Are you guys on social media too? Oh, yeah, yeah. Lunacy Prods on social, Lunacy U on social, Stu Pollard on social. So we're, we have way, with Bourbonality, we have way too many social handles. So, but no, I appreciate y'all having me. It's a lot of fun. I hope we can do it again sometime yeah. in person. And, yeah, uh, no doubt. Well, before we let you go, Stu, we do have a thing called unpaid endorsements. Can you hang out and endorse with us? Please. Unpaid endorsements. <laughs> All right, so Stu, this is an honor of you, actually. This is uh, uh, Filmmakers and Financing, Business Plans for Independence uh, by Louise Levinson, who uh, I think you turned me on to this book in your class a couple of years ago. But it is the book on writing film financing, basically, writing business plans. Completely agree. And and it kind of came full circle with me, with Louise, I, many, many years ago. But but I I think I reached out to her and just told her, I may have, I may have just thanked her for writing the book because it helped me so much write my first business plan. This is back in like 2002 or three. Anyway, we ended up having a cup of coffee and getting to know each other a little bit. At one point I had a cover quote in one of the, one of the editions of her book, but yeah, it, there's, there's a zillion books on film financing out there. And I just think hers is so just to the point, it's got some good samples in there and it doesn't, it doesn't try to do too much. So I think that's a great, a great primer for anybody who's trying to write a business plan. For the class I teach on business plans, that would be the text I recommend. Perfect. Well, and it's also I find it to be readable, and also they update it relatively frequently, so it's not like you're reading stuff that's like from yeah, you I know, think she's on eight or whatever. I I think she's on her ninth or tenth edition of that thing, which is amazing. I mean, how many people can say that? Yeah, that's pretty wild. The, this is the eighth edition. I think this one's a little old. Um, but so so the the it keeps getting updated there's uh pertinent information so uh filmmakers and financing business plans for independence is my unpaid endorsement so i recently uploaded a video to youtube and it's been a little while since i've done that and have you matt ever dealt with captions like on a video in premiere i have yes yes i have yeah um, oh. I'm finishing a film as you, uh, we talk about all the time. So I guess for a feature you, it's probably pretty easy to hire a company to do it, but you know, I uploaded a minute long video and someone on Facebook, it, I, I have a lot of deaf people that I'm friends with on Facebook on account of me making a movie with a bunch of deaf actors. And someone was like, why are there no captions? <laughs> like I can't, I don't, I'm sure this video is funny, but I can't tell what anyone's saying. And I was like, dope. And I haven't done captions in Premiere forever, like probably since 
I made my movie in like 2010 or whatever. But uh, now the caption tools in Premiere are so amazing. So if anyone is ever like using the text tool and trying to time text on top of their video and do all sorts of weird things, like stop doing that right now. And uh, you can add a new caption track in Premiere. You can actually add multiple caption tracks in different languages and you can burn them into your video. You can export them as separate SRT files. And even on YouTube, you can upload them as a separate file. And I just thought the whole process was so pleasant because I know YouTube will auto-generate captions, but part of uh, being good at writing captions, especially for comedy, is to time them right, you know, to not give away punchlines like a few seconds before they need to be given away and whatnot. And I, I read this whole BBC guide on good, you know, best practices for captioning yesterday. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I just got really excited by captions in Adobe Premiere. That's cool, uh, man. If did you, you ever, upload something to YouTube, you should you should caption it. For did you people. ever think about doing the thing? I used to do this in my web series days where I'd have it auto-transcribe from YouTube and then t- suck down that SRT file and then fix it and then re-upload it. Oh. So you, it gets you kind of like, you know, 70% of the way there, basically. No, that's a really great idea. So I'll endorse two things unsolicited. One relevant to our conversation and one that impacted our conversation. The one that's that's relevant to our conversation is Moo.com. Uh, they are an, an excellent online. They make the best on-demand business cards out there. I don't have an example with me. One of the things we do when we go to festivals or we finish a movie or whatever is we make we turn the movie poster into a business card and put our contact information on the back. So, uh, and Moo, Moo will let you do, I think up to like 50 different images on the A side of the card and your contact information is on the back. So as soon as you've made a couple of films, you can kind of have a variety pack. Uh, and they do lots of cool, they do stickers and stationary, you know, thank you notes I mentioned earlier. So anyway, I can't speak highly enough about how nice they are. And if they screw up, they will literally, sends you replacements if you tell them how they screwed up and of course you can keep all the originals and as indie filmmakers it's like yeah it's not that screwed up (laughs) send send that to the people who aren't important because they must trust uh and the endorsement that impacted the conversation is a really amazing company i believe they're based in vermont called wintersmiths.com i guess I, i mean i can show you guys but they make these you probably have seen these if you're a bourbon drinker but so these ice spheres now, you, you can buy these molds like at Williams-Sonoma that will make you really cloudy ones, but Wintersmiths has sort of cornered the market on these contraptions that you fill with water. There are these, these molds, but all the gunk drops to the bottom, so the uh, the spheres form on top. This thing's maybe like 50 bucks, and it is so killer. It just it, it makes the clearest spheres you've ever seen, and it's totally cost-effective, um, and it's my go-to Christmas gift. Uh, every year for people who love cocktails. Yeah, that's, that's cool. a very good one. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, super cool. Two good ones. I'm really into so this win- moose winter, stuff. Wintersmiths.com. Uh, cool. Awesome, Stu. Well, thanks so much for, for joining us. If you want to learn about all of the stuff that we talked about, including our unpaid endorsements, you can go to justshootitpod.com or you can follow us across all social media at justshootitpod or me at Mr. Matt Edlow. You can also email us justshootitpod at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you or give us a voicemail. We actually got a voicemail recently. Uh, 1262shoot1. We'd love to hear your voices. You hear ours all the time and uh, I think you owe it to us. Anyway, I'm on social media. I'm at O'Kaplan on Instagram. I'm at SmiteyPyleg on Twitter. 
Our episode was edited by Sarah Weirda. Our social media maestro is Derek Aiello. Some consulting producing by Ali Kornfeld. And the music you're listening to is from the Free Music Archive and the artist Jazar. And we'll catch you next time. Thanks. Thanks, everyone. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.